Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Token Agency is a proven full-service blockchain startup accelerator, helping launch only the best and brightest projects in crypto. With a project acceptance rate of less than 1%, let their team of experienced advisors and marketing specialists build gravity around your company. To learn about their top projects and more, check out tokenagency.com. Element Group is a full-service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing, and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com slash unconfirmed. I'm podcasting again from the dreamy Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Center on Lake Como, Italy, where I'm attending the New America Blockchain Trust Accelerator Blockchain Summit, an intimate gathering of 18 people focused on how blockchain technology can be used for social impact. My guest for this special episode is Robert Opp, Director of Innovation and Change Management at the United Nations World Food Program. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much. Listeners of my longer podcast, Unchained, will have heard Ethereum's Vitalik Buterin talk there about a food voucher program for Syrian refugees that uses a private version of an Ethereum blockchain. You, I believe, are the man in charge of that program. That's correct. Tell us what it is. Yes. Well, it's a really exciting program. Um, It's a pilot that we really started about a year ago when we started looking into how the United Nations World Food Program could leverage a technology like blockchain for some of the problems that we need to solve. The UN World Food Program is the world's largest humanitarian agency. We work in about 80 countries. We reach between 80 and 100 million people a year with some form of food assistance. Um, Sometimes that's food deliveries, And sometimes it's actually cash assistance. And in recent years, the amount of cash assistance has gone way up. So last year, we distributed about $1.3 billion worth of cash entitlements. And as we were looking, that makes us a big financial services kind of player. And as we were looking at our payment systems, we looked at how blockchain might be able to help us with that. And so what is the program as it's structured right now? So what the program is, is we're working, we've, we've done this pilot in uh, Jordan, and it's with Syrian refugees who have been displaced from their country for the last six or seven years in some cases due to the civil war in Syria. And the program that the World Food Program has in place already is something we call a digital voucher. A digital voucher is a cash entitlement that people can take with them to a, uh, or, or rather people can redeem at any one of um, a number of, of retail shops, like grocery stores and things like that, that have been set up for that purpose in many cases. And the current program already functions. So the current program was in place where Syrian refugees are registered by the High Commissioner for Refugees. In fact, in Jordan, they're registered with a biometric system, which is an iris scan-based system. 
We then get the names of people and the, the, the identity records so that we can provide them with cash entitlements. And to do that in the existing program or pre-existing program, what we do is we contract a local financial service provider that takes the information of identities and we transfer funds to them that we've received from our donors and they create wallets for all of the refugees. And then as the refugees go to the retail points and purchase the uh, food goods and, and other items with the iris scan system, their account is, is debited and the banks are in charge of tra tracking and reconciling the payments. But with the blockchain system, we looked at the, how that process worked with the financial service provider. And we realized that by implementing uh, a blockchain, we could actually do most of those processes ourselves. And so... In the pilot program, um, which now reaches 100,000 Syrian refugees, so it's already a little bit beyond a pilot in terms of size, what happens is we, pay, we register people on the blockchain, we create wallets for them ourselves, we trace all of the transactions via the blockchain and have all that data and traceable, traceable records. So we know exactly how much people are buying, we know how much their entitlement was, and we simply reconcile directly with the retailers through bulk bank transfers um, every two weeks. And so it allows us essentially to do without the financial service provider as an intermediary, and we're therefore able to avoid the fee that they charge us uh, as, a, as a result of that service. But it's not only the fees that is important, because there's also advantages we see in terms of increased transparency from the data we get, and a reduced risk, because we're not having to share people's identity information and we're not having to transfer funds to a third party. So we, we see a, a bundle of benefits that have happened. And what were the cost savings? The cost savings um, are in the range of 1.5%, because that's essentially what the bank fee uh, was. At the present time, with 100,000 Syrian refugees reached by this program, the savings are around 40,000 US dollars a month. Oh, wow. Okay, that's significant over the course of the year. And... Earlier you said, did you say that you started with 10,000? Yes. So, and that was in um, January? So we've actually, yes, um, we actually have gone through a couple phases of a pilot. So in January of last year, we started with a minimum viable product in Pakistan with 100 people that we simply took an existing voucher program and then we laid on top a little test blockchain uh, system that was actually ran transactions via SMS. That told us that we could actually track transactions. It kind of gave us a sense of the data that we'd get, get from it. And then we looked for a, a location where we could scale a bit more. And Jordan was ideal because of the biometric link um, with the iris scan system already in place and because it's a large population that's there. And so we um, then scaled that in May of last year to 10,000 people. Um, and in January of this year, we scaled it up to 100,000. And we do hope that they're, they're in total, there are 500,000 uh, Syrian refugees, and we hope that we can reach the entire population with the system by hopefully by the end of this year. And what are the main challenges in scaling? So, I mean, there's some operational challenges on the ground uh, related to scaling. Um, one is that the iris scan system that is in place in the camps where we're reaching people right now 
are not necessarily available in the other parts of the country because a number of refugees in Jordan are not living in camps. They are actually living among different communities across Jordan. They're still registered and they still receive entitlements from the World Food Program, but they're not in a camp situation. So we have to reach them differently. And the biggest challenge that we have right now is how to put all those operational pieces in together. If it were just a matter of extending to a larger camp population, that would actually be very easy and very straightforward because the blockchain system that we've built is actually, everything's already in place and that's not a barrier at all, actually. And is that fast to scale that quickly from 10,000 to 100,000 in, it sounds like about less than a year? I mean, I think the first, I mean, we, I, I don't know because it's the first blockchain project I've done. So people tell me it's been fast. Um, I think that I'm, I'm satisfied with what our progress was. But I think that we did take a little longer than we needed to because we wanted to be sure when we moved from 10,000 people to 100,000 people, that was getting serious business because at 10,000, we kept uh, a lot of fully redundant systems behind and we still do that to a certain extent. But we're starting to kind of move it into a space where it really is an operational program in and of itself, which means that it has to just be, it has to have more rigorous controls in it and things. And so we're doing a number of reviews right now, literally as we speak. There's a team in Jordan looking at this from an audit point of view. Um, we're also doing an IT security review. And so it's really there to test the system so that we're, we know that we have the assurance that as we scale further, that we're, we're, we've got all the, the, the things in place that need to be there. Great. We're going to talk more about security and some other issues, but first, a word from our sponsors. Element Group is a full-service advisory firm for the digital asset capital markets. Element delivers crypto economics, financing, and strategy advisory services for the industry's leading projects. Element's goal is to focus on clients in an integrative manner by offering all services a crypto-enabled company requires throughout its life cycle, such as corporate finance, asset management, OTC trading, treasury solutions, and technology services. To learn more about Element and receive exclusive research on digital assets, visit www.elementgroup.com unconfirmed. Token Agency is a proven full-service blockchain startup accelerator, helping launch only the best and brightest projects in crypto. With a project acceptance rate of less than 1%, let their team of experienced advisors and marketing specialists build gravity around your company. Today's highlighted project is the Tech Coast Angels and Wharton Alumni Angels-backed VUE, spelled V-U for Virtual Universe. VUE is an epic, story-driven, open-world adventure powered by virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and blockchain. Founded by proven gaming developers with multiple exits, the VUE token empowers players to participate and build value inside the virtual universe in fun and creative ways. To schedule a demo with the founders inside the Virtual Universe Alpha, resembling Westworld, go to viewtoken.io, that's V-U-Token.io, and check out tokenagency.com to learn more. So speaking of security, I wondered about the biometric situation. You were talking about the iris scan. Where is that data stored, and is there any risk to the refugees about that data being hacked in some fashion? So refugees worldwide um, are under the responsibility of the High Commissioner for Refugees, um, which is another UN agency. And so um, when the Syrian refugees cross the border into Jordan, they are registered by the High Commissioner for Refugees staff members. And in Jordan, they are biometrically registered, as, as we mentioned. And that is stored uh, in their own database, which is, um, to my understanding, a cloud-based um, database. But they have 
taken quite a few measures, which I'm not familiar with the technical details, but I'm assured that they've taken quite a few measures around the security. Because as you can imagine, names and identity of anybody are important to keep safe. But refugees in particular, who may be fleeing a situation of persecution and other problems, absolutely need to be safeguarded very carefully. And I also wanted to ask, did the refugees see any change on their end? Because you said it was an existing digital voucher situation. So one of the interesting things about this program, this uh, pilot, is that absolutely nothing has changed for the user, the refugees, nor has it changed for the retailers. It basically is pretty much exactly the same experience as it was before. All we've done is replace that middle part of the value chain with a blockchain that it has taken over the role that the financial service providers did previously. So really, there's been very little disruption in terms of um, needing to communicate any changes. It was just not necessary. And so this might be a too technical question, but I was just curious. A blockchain is usually built as a network of different players. Who are the different players in, in this private blockchain? Well, so far, it's actually just us. So um, your listeners might rightly ask themselves, wait, they're not doing anything a database couldn't do. Um, and that act, at this moment, that is true. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to experiment with blockchain because we do believe that there's a potential for this technology to take on a network effect in a way that databases, centralized databases can't do. And so we already have an expression of interest um, from another UN agency who wants to join this blockchain, which would then um, add nodes. I mean, we already have several nodes um, in place. So it's not just a, a one node blockchain, but it's it's a limited number, but they are shared and, and distributed among or from the World Food Program. But we already have, as I said, an expression of interest from another agency to, to join that same blockchain uh, for an entirely different program. And so we're really excited about the potential to have that agency join us and more to see if then we can really draw more value out of the data that is created from that blockchain, but also move toward, you know, just greater efficiency and effectiveness across the humanitarian system. And why have you not extended it out to, let's say, the the shops that are selling the goods that the refugees are buying? Well, if there was a good application to do that, I suppose we could. Um, at the moment, we don't I th- are you are you suggesting that we pay the shops via the blockchain system? Yeah. Um, it's actually an interesting suggestion. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. It just hasn't been in scope so far. But if it, if that uh, makes it work, uh, or if that can be done easily, uh, then I think we would do it. the The way we do it now, and and the reason we're achieving cost savings is because, as I mentioned, we give bulk transfers to the retailers, and we can actually do that very economically right now. So there's not a huge cost difference, I think, in moving to blockchain. But if from a technical perspective and from a network effect perspective, that would help us, then I don't see a reason why we couldn't expand to that. And tell me more about this other UN program that wants to use this blockchain system. What what for? Right. So, well, it hasn't been confirmed, so I won't mention the name, um, but it is a program with uh, entrepreneurs locally who are also refugees, and it involves some cash payments as well. And so they want to use the same system for their own purpose of cost efficiency, reduced risk, and increased transparency. 
and be able to then transfer the funds that they would have had to do otherwise through a financial service provider. So it's a similar kind of arrangement, but it is also a good way to just test how this kind of collaboration on this blockchain can actually work. And would you ever consider building on the public Ethereum blockchain, or do you think you would always stick with private? Um, For me, the jury is out on that one. And there would need to be people smarter in blockchain than I am that would, I would ask for advice. Um, And so we started on the private chain because it just seemed easier. And the the advice that we received from the experts at that point was, was to do that. Moving to the public chain has some issues around it. Um, Not actually, and we've received some of the, some questions from our member states that have asked, well, you know, are you using blockchains that have such a high energy consumption, you know, because of the cryptography aspect and so on? And we need to be able to answer all sorts of questions about moving to a public chain. Is it, can we demonstrate it's more secure? I mean, of course, we probably is with more nodes, but is it used too much energy or should we have other arrangements? Um, is it ultimately more expandable or is it somehow confining to do that? These are just questions that we have to work through. And for the future, I'm not taking anything off the table. Here at this conference, everyone keeps talking about how identity is such a good use case for blockchain. And obviously, you're using identity in some fashion. What do you say about the potential for blockchain technology with identity? Well, I think the potential is definitely there. We didn't start with identity, because, partly because we wanted to solve one of the more concrete and discrete problems that we've got. And as a means of getting a bit acquainted with how blockchain technology actually works and can work. But there's no question that as our programs have moved to digital, and it's not just us, it's other agencies as well, then you start to see that it doesn't make sense to have siloed bundles of information. So it doesn't make sense to have these siloed and centralized databases that don't talk to each other, and you're not able to draw data or understanding of um, you know treating people's data holistically and um, let alone uh, facilitating access for them to that data. So as we move digitally, you, it's easy to see how a blockchain-based system could really underpin a future identity management kind of um, system that would really uh, help people who don't have identities or don't have secure identities, but also just understand that the same unique individuals are being reached by multiple programs and are building up an economic history that they can then when they move back to Syria or whatever country they come from, they're able to take that history with them and really hopefully leverage that for the purpose of access to financial services and other kinds of things that they might want to pursue. So this is, it's an important use case that I think will um, emerge eventually. Um, Just the last thing to say on identity is that when it comes to refugees, we can organize our identity systems through the High Commissioner for Refugees But of course, when it comes to people who've been displaced within their own countries, we're actually dealing with national governments and multiple national governments. So it becomes a little bit more complex and pulling the digital identity ecosystem together is going to be a major task that we're all going to have to sit together and work on. But it sounds like that could be an incredible resource for all those different agencies if it were not siloed anymore. It absolutely could. It's an From our opinion... Uh, a blockchain-based system is a great way of sharing information without sharing all the information because you can define the accesses and all that sort of thing. And there's a kind of an intrinsic 
incentive to collaborate there as well. And just going back to the public versus private question, do you think that would need to be built on a public blockchain or could it still be a private one? I'm still not sure from a technical point of view. I would need to take the advice of people who know better than I do how these systems actually work and what would be the pros and cons of doing that. Yeah, it's probably way too early to, yeah. to go there. I mean, but. my gut sense is that if we move to kind of almost like a global system, then yes, we may want a public chain because I don't see really if governments would be sharing private chains. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think we need to explore that space a bit more. Yeah, but I liked also what you were saying about how it could sort of function like a credit score in, in some fashion and then it would be transportable. Because especially in the case yeah. of a refugee where their life is not permanent in that sense, then it would be good to at least take that history with them. This is critical. You know, the world has the highest level of displacement now since World War II. There are 65 million people who have been displaced from their homes as a result of conflict. And it's hard for us, I think, to imagine what it's like to flee from your home as a result of being pushed out from conflict. You cross a border and you basically have to start from zero. If you're lucky, you've carried a few personal possessions. And we see this when we look, when we go out and we talk to refugees who fled from Syria, they have a few possessions. Some of them have brought their cell phones. Some of them have brought their old identity cards if they were lucky enough to keep them. Some of them had them all burned. Some of them brought their teddy bear and some other things. But these people have had to start over. So imagine a future where, you know, I, I would like to imagine a future where this doesn't happen at all. But presuming that people do still get displaced from their homes for some reason, just imagine the power they could have if, they, if their histories were able, their economic histories were able to follow them and they were able to use that to access services and start to rebuild their lives in a different place. Yeah, that would be incredible. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Buss. Thanks for listening.